Welcome to Liberty in America, Past, Present, and Future with Dr. Bill Joby. Doc is a historian and a reenactor. On this show, you'll hear his thoughts about our personal liberties from their earliest recorded beginnings. You'll also be transported back to the 1750s to relive the life of Colonel George Washington and his adventures during the French and Indian War. Let's get started. Here's Dr. Bill Joby. As a historical reenactor of the character of George Washington, I spent many hours researching his life in various literatures, and I found that he was a devout Christian who gave much of the credit of his successes to the hand of providence that guided him. I tried to portray this story of his faith walk at a, a presentation before the Living Hope Church in Whitney, Pennsylvania in March of 2020. It was done without notes or teleprompters, so there are some errors in it. But I do hope that you enjoy this little story. Thank you. Well, good morning, gentlemen. Thank you for coming out on a Saturday morning. It is my great privilege to introduce the commander of the Continental Army, the United States, and the first president of the United States. Big living hope welcome for President General George Washington. I do appreciate your attendance at this fine morning. I see amongst us are some members of the Band of Brothers. If you could please raise your hand so I can recognize you. Excellent. Your efforts at Valley Forge was particularly appreciated and led to the uh, final victory that we had at Yorktown. I came today to speak to you a little bit about my faith, or perhaps the faith of the Lord, my faith in Him. Let me give you a little background as to what brought me to this point. My great-great-grandfather was a minister, Reverend Lawrence Washington, in England. In 1632, he was the head of a very large parish there, quite successful in all regards. At the time that Oliver Cromwell and the Parliament rose against the king, King Charles, there was a great division in the Anglican Church. I don't know if you are aware that the Anglican Church was headed by the King of England. My great-great-grandfather, Lawrence, chose to side with the King. He was a royalist. And the parliamentarians during that great civil war caused him great harm. They ostracized him, accused him of being a drunkard, and literally drove him from the pulpit. And with that, he lost his parish and his finances and eventually bankrupted. He had two sons, John and Lawrence, and John came to this country around 1662, largely to escape the persecution of his father. My great-grandfather uh, came with a, uh, a deed to title land, and that land also had uh, occupants of the natives upon it. Because he felt he had title to the land, he drove the natives off, and for that he was uh, labeled the Conotaris, or Town Taker, a name that came down through my family, eventually to myself, during the French and Indian War. I was raised by a woman of great faith, who indeed herself had trials and tribulations as a youngster. Her mother and father were both, had both died at a very young age, and she, at the age of nine, raised her sister to where they, uh, 
throughout those difficult years. My father was married prior to marrying my mother, Mary Ball, and his wife died at a young age. And he had two sons, Lawrence and Augustine. My my, uh, father's name was Augustine. After the demise of his first wife, then, uh, he married, of course, Mary Ball. And I was the first of five in my family. My father had been educated in England, although his uh, home was in Virginia. He went to a very renowned school called Appleby's Grammar Academy. It was known for strict discipline in the raising of fine young men. His two sons, John and Lawrence, Lawrence and Augustine, also attended the Appleby Academy. At age of six, our house burned down, and we had to relocate off to Pope Creek in Westmoreland County in Virginia, the colony of Virginia. Later, at age 11, my age 11, my father died, and my mother promptly made me head of the household over my four siblings. With that responsibility and with a lack of resources, I was unable to travel to England to have the same education at Applebee's as had my father and my stepbrothers. So I relied much of my early education on being schooled at home. My mother was a strict disciplinarian. Oh, incidentally, when she, she was a very active woman and quite an equestrian. When she gave her dowry at the time that she was married to my father, she had three horses and a fine leather saddle. She was very good at, on a horse, and it's something that she brought into my life very young, uh, as a very young man. The one thing that she insisted on was being uh, obedient, obedient to proper authority. And it stuck with me in many different instances, and one of which was, just remains in my mind because it had such a profound effect on the rest of my life. You see, I was asked by mother to split some firewood, and my brother Samuel was asked to go into the garden to weed. Father was going to town, and I desperately wanted to go with him because it was getting off of uh, the farm and getting to see more of the world. Well, Samuel came to me and said that mother insisted that I help him weed the garden. Now, I'm chopping wood, so I have an axe in my hand, and being very frustrated and very angry about it, I struck the nearest thing by me, and that happened to be a small cherry tree that my father had recently planted. I struck it twice, actually. Realizing that that was a mistake, when Father returned, he asked what happened, and I explained. He said, go back behind the shed and pick a switch, so I need to punish you for this. And I thought, why be punished for telling the truth? And he said, you struck in anger. You are of great size. Never, ever strike in anger. I kept it in my mind after being reminded repeatedly on my backside, that striking in anger was something that could have consequences, that could lead to great harm to not only things such as cherry trees, but also to other people. So obedience was very important. It was a very structured environment. Being that I didn't have a regular school to go to, Mother would instruct me every day, largely from the good book. I had writing lessons every morning for an hour. It was something that I relied upon later in my life intensely. I believe that working at those, uh, at drawing each letter carefully, repeatedly, 
Not only did it help my ability to communicate, it helped me put my mind, the ideas in my mind, on paper to share with others. Again, something that stayed with me my entire life. I became a prolific letter writer as I uh, became older. Part of her training was, was morning and evening devotions. Now, the closest church was nine miles away. On, by cart, that's about an hour and a half ride one way. So to go to church on Sunday was a major ordeal uh, just to get there. Uh, Pohook Church was, not, uh, as I said, nine miles away. The other in, in Alexandria was similarly distant. So most of the people, that the congregants there, wouldn't attend regularly on Sunday for that reason alone. But we attempted to be there at least once a month, and it was an Anglican church. In Virginia, as I mentioned prior, the Anglican church, being headed by the King of England, was pretty much all that there was available. However, there were different sects of, of religious denominations that occasionally came through. The Baptist of, of one uh, that I recall was greatly persecuted. Many times Baptist ministers were drugged from the, the pulpit because of their beliefs in what they were saying. If it wasn't the Anglican way, it wasn't the right way. So unfortunately, that left my mind to a very closed and narrow view of what Christianity would be about. But aided by my mother and prayer every day, I rose at four, I studied the Bible and prayed for an hour. And in the evening, I retired to my chamber at nine, prayed for another hour, and it was a habit that I kept up through my entire life. It was our belief that your faith was not something to broadcast. It was our belief that what we did in secret, our secret places, our closet, or by our givings, not letting the left hand know what the right hand was doing, or by speaking loudly or prof professing our faith in front of others, that that was its own reward. But what we did in secret with the Lord, he would reward openly. So much of what I have to say to you is I'm opening up a part of my life that I hadn't really um, disclosed to many before. But I believe that because of these, this uh, pattern, this, this habit, this discipline of daily prayer, that it came into very valuable use later. When I was 18, I was surveying with Lord Fairfax, who was the largest landowner in the town or in the country at the time, and it's through my contacts with Lord Fairfax that I became involved with other people of great note, particularly Governor Dinwiddie of Virginia. Eventually, I was interested in becoming involved in the House of Burgesses. A time came whenever the word came back that the French were advancing down the, the Belle Rivere, the Allegheny River, to, take, to occupy land which we felt was ours. King James gave property or title to the Mid-Atlantic region to the, the people that uh, came there in 1604. The French, through the efforts of the explorer La Salle, came down the Allegheny River from the Great Lakes down to the Ohio, the Mississippi, and the Gulf of Mexico that he claimed for the Christian King of France that all of those lands were to belong to the king and to France. In between there was the six nations of the Iroquois, various Indian tribes that had banded together around a loose confederation of rules, a constitution or so, if you will. The Iroquois were not very kind to those tribes that refused to join, 
and it was either join or die. But they were very successful in developing a very large area of land that included this part of western Virginia, uh, it later to become Pennsylvania. Well, in, in 17 and 53, I was asked by Governor Dinwiddie to represent the Ohio Company, who had land interest in these areas. And my goal was to travel to the French fort, not far from Lake Erie, and ask them to please uh, come off our land. I did this with a, uh, a guide, Christopher Gist, and on the way I encountered a native, one of the Indians that had originally been from the upper part of New York State. He had a very curious history that I was unaware of, but inside of that man was a passion that later became, well, revolutionary. You see, when he was a young boy, he had a dispute with the French fur traders, and they uh, actually they, they captured him, they tied him down, they tortured him until death, they dismembered him, and they ate him. And this young lad, in observing what had happened to his father, created such a hatred, a deep-seated resentment in him that would later come to surface, as I mentioned. Well, the half-king he was, he was called was also Tanaka Raisin, and he accompanied us to Fort LeBeuf, named so uh, because of the buffalo in the, uh, the grounds just south of Lake Erie that later became French Creek. And as having gone up there with a letter from the then uh, Governor Dinwiddie to inquire, to, to explain to them that this was what we considered to be English land, uh, I had the opportunity to uh, see what kind of fortifications they had. I made mental notes of the number of, of uh, boats that they had, the number of soldiers they had, etc. After that, having a very embarrassing meeting with the commandant, who politely told me that it was their land and I should really leave, um, I, it was actually uh, never in my life was I ever so nervous being surrounded by so many hostile forces. But I prepared to leave the next day, and that evening I was asked to join a dinner in which the French officers got thoroughly drunk and exposed all their secrets to me. Kept keeping this in mind, I chose to leave the next morning. Tanaka Raisin wanted to leave, or wanted to stay behind, and I was left with Christopher Gist. And on the way back from the, the uh, French Creek, the French Fort, a local Indian took a shot at me with his musket less than 15 yards away, and he missed. Uh, Christopher wanted to kill him there, but we thought that would be a problem because there would then be many after us. So we took his rifle and sent him on his way. We left our horses behind and headed down towards, uh, back towards Virginia. Now, mind you, this was in November and December of 17 and 53, so it was quite cold. And the, the, uh, the snow was high, and there was much ice on the rivers as we traversed that ground. We got down to the, the uh, outer bran northern bank of the Belle Rivere and spent a day crafting a raft in order to cross the river back onto, uh, onto the ground to head back to Virginia. Later in that day, as we attempted our crossing, I was in lead of this raft. My pole got stuck in about 10 feet of water. There was ice, icebergs, large pieces of ice throughout the river. The current was swift. And in, in catching, catching my pole, I was thrust into the water. Being soaking wet, Christopher helped drag me out. We made it to an island in the middle of the river where we spent the night. He ended up with frostbitten fingers, and somehow he said, I slept like a babe. Now, when everyone takes 
a youngster learns a little bit about God, in our case, we called him Providence. As a young age, it's repeating a lot of prayers, stories, whatever, but it doesn't really impact one until one sees the tangible results of that invisible hand in one's life. And those two occasions where I could have lost my life, either through exposure or through the shot from that Indian, I began to see the value of all the time that I had put into my daily devotions and all those things that my mother taught me, the discipline. And later, that also was reinforced by yet another uh, incident. However, at that point, we made it across. The next day, the river was so frozen, we walked across the rest of it. We left the horses behind. Normally, we'd have them swim the river. But we left them behind out of fear of being uh, followed. Uh, We had spent the whole night trying to get away from that Indian. And going through the darkness, through the wilds of western Virginia here, uh, to escape you know, what we didn't know was quite harrowing. The only thing we knew was just keep moving, keep moving, keep moving. And that, I believe, spared our lives. Making it back to Virginia, I, re- I provided a booklet of my adventures to the governor, and that found its way into the London press. And suddenly there was quite a bit of notoriety to my life, something that I was very unexpected being just a country boy. Well, nonetheless, as we saw that they, the French were not going to leave easily, we mounted a force and came back to challenge them. Now, with that second uh, excursion, at that point I was a lieutenant general. I had been a major when I made it to the Fort LeBeouf originally. Became a lieutenant general, and through the course of organizing our soldiers, mostly of which were the Virginia Regiment, uh, what we would call the uh, uh, the band of uh, blue, because we had all had blue uniforms, and we were fierce Indian fighters. We brought that together with some of the regulars and stayed in a place called the Great Meadows. It's uh, quite a far, maybe 20 or 30 miles south of us here, but it was just an excellent open field, not unlike what you have here. As we were there, Tanaka Raisin, remember I, I mentioned to you the Indian young boy that became a, a great leader. Tanaka Raisin appeared, and he said, there's a French a group of soldiers coming for you. And this was now May of 1754. And uh, we, I thought, well, what could be anything less than hostile? And through the encouragement of Tanaka Raisin, we took them as a hostile force. But we didn't know where they had camped the night before. So in the rain and during the night, we stumbled through the darkness until we came across the, uh, the encampment of the French. And there was probably 30, maybe 40, led by an ensign Gémonville, who was supposedly an ambassador to give a message to us, although outside of my knowledge at the time. In the early morning, we surrounded the camp, uh, and at the base of this uh, cliff of sorts, Three sides were surrounded with Virginians, and the fourth side was surrounded with our Indian friends. One of the, the Frenchmen went to grab a rifle. Uh, prior to that, one of the, uh, the French soldiers had left camp to relieve himself, barefoot, at about the time that one of the other soldiers grabbed his musket that was uh, placed together outside their camp. Seeing a hostile act, I ordered a fire, and we, firing ensued. A number of Virginians were killed and many of them we had taken prisoner. However, the incident Gémonville, the officer in charge, he was just wounded. So he was put up against a tree, and Tanaka Raisin, 
saw that he was still alive, he took his tomahawk and struck him in the head saying, you are not yet dead, my father. Not yet dead. Well, it turns out that in his pocket there was a letter saying, please get off our land. And the other one says, we demand that you get off our land. The tomahawks broke his skull open, and Tanaka Raisin took the brains out, washed his hands in them, and ate them. In front of my sight, and I wretched. I couldn't believe that this had happened. I couldn't believe that this had gotten to this point. But the passion in that Indian, that passion in his heart, the hatred for the French. You see, the Indians called the French father. They called the English brother. But what had happened there... As we retreated back to the Great Meadows, we expected a response. And the brother of uh, Ensign J. Monvi soon came down with a, a large force to uh, attack us at, at Great Meadows. Now, having put the, in the context of morning devotions, evening devotions, this was quite perplexing to me. It's something that I had not anticipated. And perhaps it was that I rose in anger in spite of what my father taught me with the cherry tree. But the many thoughts went through my mind. So as we reorganized at the Great Meadow, we built a fort out of necessity, which was a stockade force with logs, placed right in the middle of the field as if it were in the middle of that field. Unknowing to us was the patterns and habits of the warfare of the Indians, which was to hide behind trees and to stay hidden until you were to shoot. We were quite exposed, expecting a European-style confrontation, which is where there are lines of fire and presented arms and exchanges of fire, and that's how the matter was settled. Well, it didn't turn out to be that way. The Indians and the French came in a large number and began to fire down upon us on our fort. Again, wondering where my faith, how my faith carried me through, I don't know. But my soldiers, seeing that they were being badly uh, lost, broke into the rum supplies at the center and got thoroughly drunk. And then along came a thunderstorm like I hadn't seen on July 4th of 54. And that thunderstorm, not only did it render our gunpowder ineffective, but also for the French. Seeing that without gunpowder there wasn't much of a fight, they called for a parley. And in the darkness, using an interpreter, it was half Dutch, half French, half English, or part English, explained that they would be willing to let us go with our arms and our horses and a, uh, a less humiliating defeat. Part of that agreement, the very end of it was, that by signing it, by my signing it, that I agreed that I assassinated the ensigns J. Monvi, that I killed him, that I murdered him. But it wasn't, it was Tanaka Raisin. But because I couldn't read French and I relied upon the interpretation of the Dutch man that was with me, and because it was dark and it was raining and it was by candlelight, I agreed to it. And we walked off with our weapons and our horses and a promise not to return for two years. Well, that signed document made its way back to France. And what happened after that was the French and Indian War. From having gone to be an international celebrity to be an international embarrassment, it was quite a change for a young man in his 20s. But again, the concept of faith, the fact that there was something to fall back on, something to keep in mind, something to show forward. The affirmation of 
The hand of providence in my life, that invisible hand, came about because, as I said before, you read a lot, you're told a lot, you pray a lot as a young man like these boys here, but how do they know that God is real until they have an experience with him? So all of these experiences were yet to accelerate as I returned with General Braddock to try to take the fort, which now the French had built in, at Fort Duquesne at the mouth of the Allegheny and the Mongahela. That great confrontation took place not far outside of what, uh, outside of that fort area. And because we were accustomed to European styles of war and because of the arrogance of General Braddock, believing that an open confrontation in the fields, as they had done for centuries in Europe, that this was how it was going to be. And in front of the, our lead was the, the Highlanders, the Black Widow Brigade. They were to be as fierce as any native in their fighting abilities. But what they didn't encounter or didn't expect was to be fired at from behind trees and rocks. And they decimated the front of our forces. Officers were shot. Horses were shot. I had four bullet holes in my coat and one through my hat. I had two horses shot out from under me. I was the only officer still capable, although I wasn't a, a regular uh, British officer because I hadn't been uh, in England. I was not entitled to be that. General Braddock was wounded, some say from behind, because as he tried to advance the troops forward, he would hit them in the back with the flat of his sword, and some of the locals thought that he was actually trying to kill his own men, and they shot him. Mortally wounded, he asked me to, to form a retreat. And that I had. Later, I found that one of the Indians' uh, leaders claimed that he had seven fair shots at me, which, after which, not being able to hit me, told the rest of the, the, his sharpshooters to cease fire because a great spirit protected me. We made our way back. With a harrowing experience such as that, again, understanding the providential and they impart into my life, reaffirmed, strengthened my faith that even yet had been not totally challenged. After having returned to Virginia, then General Forbes decided to come and do the same by cutting a path through the mountains. And that in 1758, he came to an area not far from here called the, the, the uh, Fort at Loyal Hannah. Loyal Hannah was a crossroads between two Indian uh, tra or trails, the, um, uh, the, the Shawnee Trail and the, uh, oh, I forget the other, but anyhow, the trail ran from uh, North Carolina to Erie. So this was a major crossroads of Indian trade in the area where an Indian uh, village, uh, the Mongahalians, and they, their population was decimated from smallpox brought down by the French, French fur traders and, and actually to, uh, with given blankets with smallpox on them in order to eliminate these people. A sort of biological warfare, if you will. I came through there after an encounter on October 11th where the French attempted to go and drive us out. I was in a baggage train coming over the mountain. But the following month, the French were going to return, and as word came to us, Colonel Mercer was sent out with about 300 Virginians 
to encounter the incoming enemy away from the fort to protect our livestock. Because once they had taken our horses and cattle, it would be very difficult to remain through the winter. A great firing ensued. And later in the day, General Forbes said to me, take another 200 Virginians out, flank them, and end this. So as we went down the Loyal Hannah, around two-mile run, we came up through uh, the, the, fang, or the flank of Colonel Mercer's uh, forces, and in the gathering darkness, in the fog of war, and the black powder smoke, although I sent a messenger ahead to warn them that we were coming, that message did not get through, and a friendly fire incident occurred. As I saw that we were firing upon our own, I went through the ranks with presented pieces, rifles up, ready to shoot. I went through that line, knocking the muskets up with my sword. Never in my life have I believed I was ever so close to death as that moment. Fortunately, we were able to find three prisoners, two of which told us that the French had already abandoned the fort at Duquesne and the Indians were going back to their villages. I was given a field promotion to Brigadier General, and I led the forces from the, the post at Loyal Hannah in a march uh, through the wilderness with axes and crowbars, and the men created a road 10 or 12 feet wide so we could take our baggage and supplies down to uh, besiege the fort. Colonel Bouquet wished to do that with bateaus, with cannons, on the north shore of the Allegheny and to bombard Fort Duquesne. But being that we had this information, a council of war had been called, and that all changed. We eventually took over the Fort uh, Duquesne in December of that year. Again, one of the instances where I narrowly escaped death fortified my strength that the hand of providence was with me, that there was a purpose for this, and that I can believe and act accordingly uh, even more so, knowing that having that protection of the hand of providence would later again become crucial as we got into the next phase of my life. The French and Indian War went on for several more years. In 1763, eventually a treaty was signed. However, the cost of war is great. The French had incurred great debts as the English. The French wanted to, to um, get that money back by taxing their wealthy. The English chose to tax the colonies. And that was very unpopular here. But that set the stage for the events that would later follow at Concord and Lexington. Those... Um, the rebellion in Boston against simple tea tax, among other taxes, raised up a resistance that turned into a war. And as I could see that it was coming this way to Virginia, I presented to Congress, essentially saying that I would accept command if offered, and that, and that indeed happened. So with a ragtag group of soldiers, we moved to Boston we chased the British out of Boston by faking a, uh, a bombardment. And from that point on, it became a full-fledged war. Again, in that situation, and I, at, later on at the Battle of Germantown, French, uh, English sharpshooters, one of which was Captain Charles Ferguson, 
who invented a breech-loading muzzle loader, which meant that you could fire much more quickly. He and his six sharpshooters within 40 yards of me, unbeknownst to me, with their rifles aimed at my back while I was on horseback surveying and reconnoitering the battlefield. Something later Charles would write, something told me before he pulled the trigger on his rifle that he shouldn't shoot. I became aware that I was being looked at, watched, turned, saw what had happened, and calmly rode away. Later on, Charles Ferguson died in the Battle of Kings Mountain in South Carolina. But he didn't know at the time he had his crosshairs on me, which would have ended the war right there. Again, the hand of providence. On another occasion, we were riding, uh, traveling between two towns, and we came across a bridge that appeared to be less than satisfactory. Fearing that it wouldn't be able to handle all of the weight of us, we went across single file. But I dismounted and let my horse go first, and the bridge collapsed. Again, another time in my life would have been spared. Later on at the Battle of Mammoth in Virginia, in the scorching heat, I'm sorry, in New Jersey, the scorching heat, 100-plus degrees, we fought with the retreating British Army, who was fully laden with all of their packs, 65-pound packs in their brown vests. As we were advancing, Colonel Lee, or General Lee, decided to retreat. I was in reserve. And he came back, and the forces of our guys were running back. And I, I encountered him. I said, what are you doing? And he said, well, we're, it's lost. I demoted him on the spot from showing a rare type, a rare instance of my anger. Again, thinking about that cherry tree incident. I demoted him on the spot, took charge of the field, led them back in until we had a full line of fire at 40 yards. I'm right in the middle of it. An exchange went off. All of my officers thought for sure I'd be dead when the smoke cleared. I said, come on, boys, we'll route them as if a fox hunt. And off we did, and we chased them back through New Jersey, back up to New York. Again, another instance where Providence protected me. After we had gone through all of this, eventually, as you well know by now, that they surrendered at Yorktown. It had to be another providential event. And I could probably speak of many more. But the fact that our French brothers came with their naval force and blockaded the British in the Chesapeake were using a favorable easterly wind, which was uncommon at that time of the year. It's because they were there that they were able to bombard from the, from the waters, and we bombarded with our cannonade from land that forced General Cornwallis to, to surrender. So faith, what is my faith? Every day, that habit my mother taught me came to mind. I didn't try to show it off. I kept it in my private closet when I gave to the poor, the orphans, the needy. Never told anyone. Kept records, but never told anyone. When it came to the churches, quietly sat, hopefully not being noticed. And I believe that that was an important part of what transpired. What I did in secret with the Lord, he rewarded openly. I hope this information has helped you understand some of my life and the kinds of things that can happen when one takes one's faith seriously. 
You've been a wonderful audience. <laughs> and I appreciate you coming out this morning. Reverend Allen, particularly. Thank you.